Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my distinguished co-host, Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Welcome, Dan. Well, you're distinguished too, Leslie. Well, thank you kindly. Every week, Dan and I will go beyond the headlines of the top TV stories and offer a deep dive into the latest news and biggest episodes. Let's get into it. Number one. Leading off the week, let's close the book, at least for another year, on the Golden Globes. Dan, this was a weird show, and it had some very high highs. The Americans wins Best Drama for its final season. Carol Burnett's incredible acceptance speech for the award named in her honor. And, well, pretty much everything Sandra Oh did. And on the flip side, it had some, well, not so high highs. Dan, you've made no secret that the Golden Globes drive you insane. What are your takeaways this year? We call those not-so-high highs lows, I think. For the record, uh, for any listeners who want a sense of why the Golden Globes are so strange and why the Hollywood Foreign Press is so difficult to get a feel for, you should really go back and listen to last week's episode where my name doppelganger, Scott Feinberg, came and talked to us about the particularities of the Hollywood Foreign Press and how they can be lobbied successfully or unsuccessfully to give awards. If memory serves, were his both of his predictions wrong for series? Were all of his predictions wrong? I mean, I think he got a couple right. I have to go back and listen because I pay no attention to award season for most of the of the year. But he picked Pose for Best Drama, which is a show I was secretly rooting for. Well, not so secretly. But I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who disagrees with the Americans taking home that prize. Yeah, that was the the highlight of the show for me. And since for no particular reason, the HFPA or the producers or whomever decided to put that award 30 minutes into the show and the show then ran 20 minutes long over the three hours it was supposed to run, that meant that the highlight of the show came very, very early on in the show. And there were a lot of strange things happening after that. As you say, the Carol Burnett speech was wonderful because Carol Burnett is awesome. And that's the great thing about the Globes is that they really do give these honorary awards and they let people speak as much as they want, as opposed to the Oscars that have pushed the Lifetime Achievement Awards to another day entirely and they don't televise them and you just never know. And that is horribly disrespectful to Hollywood history and something that the Oscars should give some serious thought to. I mean, Carol Burnett <laughs> said that her variety show, the Carol Burnett show, this is an iconic show, One of something that I loved watching when I was a kid would never make it to air today. Like, if that's not a statement about the state of the broadcast climate, I don't know what is. I think it's true. I think also we'll get a little bit later in this show to some of the things that have maybe perhaps taken that variety space up, and we'll get there in a bit. I think she's right, and she's just great. And you could tell watching the crowd that they were hanging on every word, as opposed to watching the crowd with Jeff Bridges, who also accepted a Lifetime Achievement Award. There was the Buckminster Fuller boat analogy that Jeff Bridges went off on for, I'd say, probably in the neighborhood of five minutes. And there was footage of Alan Arkin in the crowd looking... I don't know if he looked like he was in awe, like he looked like he was comatose, whatever it was, he definitely did not look as if he understood the analogy. So yeah, great, great moments across the board. What did you think of our two hosts of Sandra Oh and Andy Samberg? Well, I think individually, they're both fantastic. I've covered Grey's Anatomy since I started my writing career here at THR. I've talked to her multiple times in my career. She's incredible and as nice and as talented as you would expect. And Andy is, well, I mean, everyone knows who he is. He's 
always been terrific. He's super funny. He's humble, down to earth, all qualities he shares with Sandra Oh. And I thought they played really well together. And I mean, I would pretty much watch them, you know, read the phone book together at this point. And if you haven't read the conversation between them that Bryn Sandberg oversaw for that was a THR cover story leading into the Globes, it's probably one of my favorite reads in recent memory. It was so fun. And so, you know, they just have a great dynamic. The Oscars would be so lucky. I'm going to transition to that in a second. But first, I will say that uh, I, I expected you to get to a but there after all of the nice things you were saying about them, but you didn't get there. I know a lot of people didn't love what they did. I think that they had a nicer approach than a lot of people were thinking. And yet, and that's why I love them. I mean, it's hard being a TV reporter in this landscape, you know, especially politically. I mean, look, my desk is in the middle of the newsroom opposite CNN all day long. It's exhausting. And just from a sanity point of view, like... It was kind of refreshing to see a very nice, literal nice monologue, you know, and to me, that was a great way to start the year. You know, everyone's got their, you know, their, their resolutions and everything else. And, you know, why not start with positivity? I guess the question comes if you feel like there's negativity that needs to be addressed, which definitely Seth Meyers had to last year. Last year, Seth Meyers had the task of responding to Time's Up, Me Too, all of that, basically as it was in the process of unfolding. And he did, to me, as good a job as a human being could do under impossible circumstances. These circumstances were more possible. You look at the things that were nominated and you look at the state of Hollywood and I guess you would say it's better or less conspicuously awful and therefore they got to be positive. I, I thought Sandra Oh seemed very nervous and uncomfortable, but she became increasingly more relaxed as it went along, which leads me to the belief that if you were to give them another shot at this next year, they would be much more relaxed and they could actually do more things. I, I, they definitely were holding Andy Samberg back because you know that if Andy Samberg hosts a show like this himself, there's going to be a musical number. They're going to find a way to get the Lonely Island guys involved, et cetera, et cetera. And in this case, I do think they conspicuously went with two people talking on the stage because they were, you know, making sure that Sandra Oh felt comfortable. And I think that if they did this again, she would be more relaxed and I would be perfectly happy to let them do this again. I'd be perfectly happy to let them do this again, say, for example, at the Oscars, which are currently hostless. This is not a second topic, but it is a topic that I believe we've now dealt with basically every week we've done this. Yes, it's our new regular <laughs> segment. What's going on with the Oscar host search here on TV's top five? Still no host. Kevin Hart was on GMA this week and said he's out of the running. He doesn't want to do it anymore. He apologized, I think, for the first time. That's a bad joke. Maybe for the latest time. I don't know. I'm happy he's not doing it. Dan, I mean, we've talked about things that they could do, what they should do. At, at this point, is this a job anyone in this town wants? I think this is a hilarious circumstance because Kevin Hart right now, he has a movie to promote. And so he's doing all of these things because he has a movie to promote and he doesn't want to be discussing all of this. He doesn't want to be semi-apologizing, pseudo-apologizing, half-apologizing, blaming the trolls on the internet for ruining his good day. He would be perfectly happy to not talk about any of this clearly, but he's got a movie to promote. And so he's just out there saying stuff. And I thought that the stuff he did with Ellen just blew up in his face. Do not make me talk about Ellen. I am very, <laughs> very, very angry at Ellen DeGeneres. This is, I mean, I'm going to talk about Ellen now, but, but 
this is someone I've I have idolized since I was in college. Her coming out episode of her ABC comedy aired on my birthday. I wrote multiple stories about it as a women's studies minor and journalism major in college. I've seen her and bummed into her numerous times at clubs in West Hollywood, you know, when I was in college, when she was an up and coming stand up who played a lot of the gay clubs. It, it feels like our poster child for equality just stabbed me in the back. It's it's brutal. And I, I can't look at her the same way. And it's hard. It breaks my heart. She didn't make him apologize. She didn't have an open and honest conversation with him. I mean, there was not one part of that interview that was not painful to watch. And the remarkable thing is that very clearly they did not anticipate that being the reaction to it. <laughs> but also, like, I get that it's not her, you know, she's, you know, she doesn't necessarily have a brand of journalism. She is the nice host who wants to sing and dance and promote your movie. But the first thing that, that came out of her mouth is, I want you to host the Oscars. Like, she approached that interview with an agenda. It wasn't an open and honest conversation about his indiscretions. It was the polar opposite. And I, I can't, I can't get past that. I do not disagree i i was astounded by the the tone deafness of it and uh, astounded again by the fact that they very clearly thought that the reaction was going to be different i i think she anticipated that that interview was going to grease the wheels to allow him to come back and even if the reaction to that interview had been 95 percent positive and five percent negative if the negative percentage was as angry and loud as it was that was still going to make it impossible for him to host the oscars but very clearly they didn't expect there was going to even be that little bit they really thought that because ellen is the ambassador that it was not going to be any problem and she is usually a person whose sense of tone is much better than that and she really blew it on that one so let's circle back does it make any difference to you if the oscars have a host no i could care less well, now, is that because you don't care about the show, because you don't care about the hosting of the show, or... I mean, the Oscars, it's like the gay Super Bowl, right? That's the joke, right? I cover television for us, right? The amount of interest that I have in the feature side, it, it's there. And obviously, this is part of my job. The ceremony airs on TV. This is, you know, you can't work at The Hollywood Reporter and not care about the Oscars. But at this point, there's nothing else that they can do. Just do it hostless. Or have somebody come out at the, at the top of the ceremony, do some pre-recorded thing where we, where you have people talking about the importance of diversity and inclusion and visibility and move on with it. Just focus on the awards. Focus on the movies. We lose track of that with all these you know, pre-taped segments and all this other stuff. I mean, I know I just contradicted myself there, but like focus on the movies, right? Most of these movies have such great themes this year. Let the movies speak for themselves. Agreed. That feels like a good note. Let's move on. Number two. Our next topic this week is perhaps the biggest casting story of the early year. HBO has cast eight rising stars in its highly anticipated Game of Thrones prequel pilot from writers George R. R. Martin and Jane Goldman. Dan, there's so much interest in this. It's only a pilot right now. There's so many things that have to go before this is on the air. But what do you think of the cast? They began a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's kind of funny that Naomi Watts got her own round of, you know, they, they put it out, okay, if Naomi Watts gets a couple months to ripple out as the star of this thing. The, the first question that I have before actually asking you to list the fine people is, does it even matter who's going to star in this show? I mean, yes, people knew Sean Bean and, you know, they knew Aiden Gillen, etc. There were a few people who people knew, but it's not like anyone watched Game of Thrones because they're like, ooh, let's watch these newcomers you know wasn't that was not what drew people to that series 
But I think what's interesting is that they're getting a lot of these up and coming actors. They're not just casting people that may have been on, on your radar because they were a good supporting person way back when. But a lot of these people like Naomi Aki has a role. She's going to be in the new J.J. Abrams Star Wars in December. I mean, that's a big commitment. And now she's taking on a second one on top of this. I mean, these are all young faces that could be the face of a franchise multiple franchises in, in, in Naomi's case, I think it's interesting that they're going with buzzy young people. Or alternatively, in the case of Jamie Campbell Bauer, possibly his seventh or eighth attempt at a franchise. This is a guy who was cast in... He was in Twilight. He was in Twilight. He was in whichever the King Arthur thing was that Stars did for a couple seasons. He, you know, he was in Mortal Instruments. These are all things that were supposed to be franchises that wouldn't necessarily have been built around him, but he's a guy who's been circling to different degrees a variety of different franchises in search of anybody actually looking and going, oh, that's dot 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 star Jamie Campbell Bauer. I actually think he's a he's a pretty good actor. Uh, yeah, and then you've got someone like like Georgie Henley who played Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia franchise. And perhaps more interesting, Toby Regbo, also known as Young Dumbledore in, in the Fantastic Beasts movie. I mean, these are up and coming stars. And I think it's it's a big investment that HBO is making. And, and it signals that they want this show to be, A, not only succeed, but really have these kids be part of this franchise for a very, very long time and have this be super relevant. And I think it's a, I think it's a good thing for them to be trying to do because, again, they can't count on people knowing who any of these people are playing and they can't count on people knowing the property in specific. They can't say you've read these books, jump in. And so they've got to sell it on something else. Right. I mean, well, they're selling it on this is a Game of Thrones and it's George R. R. Martin involved. And, you know, for those who don't know, the pilot is set thousands of years before the events of the flagship series and chronicles the world's descent from the golden age of heroes into its darkest hour per HBO. What the heck does that mean, Leslie? That means that this is a big, vast <laughs> universe and this prequel pilot will take place thousands of years before the events that we all know and love from Game of Thrones. Okay, I, I'm very curious about this because on one hand, this seems clearly like a no-brainer. It, it seems like, of course, this is going to get added and of course it's going to be a hit and all of that. And yet I still wonder what the quote-unquote brand is once you get away from the books. And is the brand just that people have last names that, that, that we're going to recognize? Is the brand that it comes from this deep, rich mythology that lots of the the truly passionate fans of the franchise know by heart. And is that going to make a difference to the more casual fans who just want dragons? Uh, like, I, how do you sell this if you're HBO? <laughs> how do I sell this if I'm HBO? Other than... Three words. Game of Thrones. <laughs> I mean, it's the biggest show in the world. Does that mean that, that it, its name actually has to be Game of Thrones colon 1,000 years before or whatever it's going to be like, do you have to have the name Game of Thrones in the title? I think you'd be remiss to not capitalize on the the brand association that comes with that. I mean, like you can go anywhere in the world and talk about Game of Thrones. This is a global phenomenon. It's the biggest show on television right now. It's perhaps one of the best shows on television all time. The bar that they've set with the flagship, HBO Smart, they know that they have high standards that they have to live up to. Otherwise, they're going to they're going to tarnish the brand. And they've got other prequels in the works, too. They could possibly have multiple series as they build out this franchise. I mean, look at what AMC is doing with Walking Dead. Same thing. The Andrew Lincoln movies, Fear the Walking Dead, all the digital shorts. I mean, there's going to be a prequel Walking Dead, another prequel that Gimple is working on. 
for AMC. I mean, this is just the beginning of expanding this world. I just wonder what the tale is for any of these. Like, there's no question that you put this on and the first couple of weeks, people are going to flock to it by the tens of millions. I just wonder about by week two. Now, one of the things we haven't mentioned is that they also announced this week that S.J. Clarkson is going to be directing the pilot for this prequel. And that to me is incredibly interesting because the relative lack of female directors on the mothership has been a thing with Game of Thrones. It, you know, it simply is not, it is a non-representative number of female directors. And to actually throw down the gauntlet with the pilot here and say, S.J. Clarkson is going to direct this. And she's incredibly talented. She directed the pilot for Jessica Jones. She's directed on a number of your favorite TV shows. She She's extremely talented. And it really, it, to me, it's a statement. So. And it's also a statement that this is the same director who is going to become the first woman to helm a Star Trek movie, too. This is pressure she's, I'm sure, already getting used to. Yes, she is up and coming. film and TV fronts. Know the name S.J. Clarkson, clearly, and know that she's a woman. I just think it's important to know because people do not necessarily assume based on initials. And it's important to know because it's progress. And we support progress. Yes. Speaking of progress, that takes us awkwardly to our next topic. Let's talk about Lifetime Surviving R. Kelly. Number three. This is a three-night, six-part docuseries that featured more than 50 interviews and has already launched at least one criminal investigation in Georgia as investigators have started reaching out to women featured in the docuseries about claims of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. R. Kelly has denied the allegations against him in the series. One of the exec producers for Lifetime said calls to a sex abuse hotline surged after the documentary aired. Dan, have you watched the show? How big of an impact could this make? I have watched half of the show. So I've watched the first three hours, and I don't want to say that's quote-unquote enough, but it's heavy stuff. It's it's nonstop, and it is, I mean, more than anything, it's credible, and that's what it's doing, because it's not revealing anything that most people don't know to a lesser degree. It's simply saying, okay, this thing that you laugh off, this thing that you... Put as a footnote after saying, but I love, I believe I can fly, uh, you know, this thing that we sort of look at as a dark chapter that South Park made a joke about, or we make a joke about trapped in the closet. It's not a thing to joke about. It's an extremely horrifying and serious thing that we have allowed to be only a footnote. And that's the point this makes more than anything is, look, this is probably, regardless of what investigations are being opened, I don't suppose this is going to land R. Kelly in jail. And if you watch the first three hours or all six hours of this documentary, you'd have a hard time coming away feeling that he's paid the proper price for what he's allegedly done. I don't think this is going to be like the jinx where it's going to get Robert Durst potentially thrown in jail for life. I I think that the impact it is going to have is to make people put the allegations against R. Kelly front and center rather than as a footnote. And this is a really hard to watch series, but you can't come away from it feeling anything other than, boy, this is a miscarriage of justice that has been taking place for 20 plus years. Yeah, and I think it's something that we'll continue to monitor as things develop and more people find the episodes. I mean, ratings, at least from the first couple days after it aired, has been great for Lifetime. I mean, they averaged 2.1 million overall 
and a point nine in the demo. They grew every single night, all three nights. And it was the best demo haul in more than three years for an unscripted show. That's also not something, a sentence that we really say quite often about content on Lifetime specifically. So I think as more people find this show, I wouldn't be surprised to see other outlets maybe investigate some of these claims and, and do follow-up interviews with some of these women. Do you have any sense of, of what the numbers of this size, what they could mean in terms of what Lifetime's brand is or how it's evolving or anything? I mean, one of the producers on the show who works for Lifetime has said that they are considering doing other documentaries in this vein where they they take on someone who's been controversial and and put their own microscope on it. But no, it's I mean, Lifetime's they don't really have any scripted stuff right now. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them take on more of this timely content. Yeah, it was it was interesting watching this and seeing kind of the things they're advertising and and sort of where Lifetime currently is. Lifetime continues to occupy this this strange space between legitimacy and kind of fringe. And it's it's interesting because even the things they do that are fringe are, are kind of giving voice to certain things. It's still a network that discusses sexual abuse in a candid way that no other network really does as kind of a, a brand identity. So this fits well with that brand identity. I just wonder when you have a hit like this, what it means for the future and, and how you how you capitalize on the success of surviving R. Kelly without making it seem crass and vaguely embarrassing for everybody. Yeah, well, they'd be wise to find a way to do some sort of follow up on this, whether it's talking, doing more interviews with the women who are sharing their harrowing tales and allegations or re-airing this and promoting the hell out of it. I think they are. I think it also snuck up on them. I don't think anyone necessarily anticipated that this was going to be as big as it is. I mean, premiering right after the new year. With little to no promotion. Certainly little to no promotion in the circles that we roll in. I would say that this was one where where Black Twitter was on top of it and, you know, on top of it in the most righteous and powerful ways as you know possible simply saying here are these stories and here are the reasons why we've ignored it and part of why we've ignored these stories is the marginalization of black women and black women's voices and so seeing the way that black twitter picked up on this and said okay hear us <laughs> that was powerful for me and it, and it was a large part of why i watched it after not initially planning to is, is seeing the number of people who felt this was a powerful and personal experience for them made me feel like I wanted to at least experience it myself. Well, for our fourth topic this week, on a lighter note, let's talk about Unscripted. Number four. Fox announced this week that it's reviving its short-lived reality competition series, Paradise Hotel. It's a show I know you have a lot of feelings about, Dan. Like the 2003 original, the new Paradise Hotel will drop a group of singles into an exclusive tropical resort with one cast member voted off every week. This, of course, arrives as USA Network offered an early glimpse at Temptation Island, that being a reboot of the former Fox format. And after CBS won an ultra-competitive battle for U.S. rights to UK smash Love Island. Not to be forgotten, ABC's The Bachelor, which already spawned two different spinoffs, returned this week and continues to hold steady. Dan, I mean, 
what's this push? I mean, how many of these shows do you watch? And, and what is what is America's obsession with dating shows? The answer is I watch very few of them, but I watch them in oddly hit and miss ways in the sense that I watched all of the original Paradise Hotel and I've watched only like three episodes of The Bachelor ever. So why one and not the other? I, I don't know. There are definitely people I know who are insanely excited about Love Island and its UK incarnation, which has been available to stream in the States and people seem to be getting secondhand obsessed here. I was, I was just in London and the frequency with which the British press references people and their Love Island credits is absurd. But then again, they really, really dig. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. That's a thing that they which failed here, which failed utterly here. And yet in the UK gets coverage on a daily basis in the papers and, and people are very excited about it. And, you know, so who's to say? <laughs> who's to say what's better or worse? I have no interest at all in in the Temptation Island reboot on on USA. And will I watch a new Paradise Hotel? Yeah, I, but the thing I'll probably discover is I don't know why I watched the original as much as I did. I don't think there was like a good reason for it. I don't think it was better in the same way that I watched Forever Eden, which was the even trashier follow up to Paradise Hotel on Fox. Good grief. Which I don't believe ever ended. And I've insisted for the past 15 years that the cast of Forever Eden is still out there in the jungles of Central America somewhere and no one has told them. <laughs> and every once in a while, someone drops a bottle of Cipro and some penicillin onto the shores and, and they've gone entirely feral. This is the story that I like to believe. It's irrelevant if it's true. That I would watch, by the way. Well, well I mean, honestly, who wouldn't? But it's all it's all Milf Island, ultimately. I mean, it's it's, you know, we're all just one step away for another 30 Rock parody. So so give me the sort of the brass tacks bottom line of why we're suddenly seeing so much of this and even things that really kind of cease to be popular. <laughs> I mean, these shows from a, a network perspective, these shows are cheap to produce when you compare it to the, the millions that you can spend on a pilot of a scripted show. They're inexpensive. And a lot of these are formats that are successfully tested abroad that they're buying rights to to air locally. You know, and it also comes as a lot of these networks are looking for live programming, right? Things that are DVR proof, like sports, award shows like the Globes and Oscars. Really, in a streaming era, that's what broadcast is really leaning toward. I mean, New Fox, we saw last week, The Masked Singer came back. The numbers for that were bigger than I think anyone expected, myself included. And I thought it would be big. But it's also, you know, that Masked Singer specifically, it's like watching a car accident, right? These people are parading around these giant pineapples. You know, this is, I think, it's the same thing. It's 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 human interest. And from a network side, cheap to produce, appeals to a mass audience. It's it, the check writes itself. It's still, though, so strange because, you know, Temptation Island and Paradise Hotel, they ceased to be on air for a reason. People stopped watching them. Like the first season of Paradise Hotel was a small hit. The second season was a total disaster. Forever Eden was a bigger disaster in the same way that Joe Millionaire, and I think we're definitely due for another Joe Millionaire. I mean, why, why would you not try bringing that back? It's been a long time. But Joe Millionaire had one incredibly popular season, and then it had a second season that was a disaster. Now, if you were to give Fox those ratings from the second Joe Millionaire exactly season right now. <laughs> those are all gold. I mean, but that, that proves my point. No one's watching live television anymore. So you have to create programming that A, is cost effective and B, that can draw a live audience. Because if you get spoiled on who was voted off on, you know, spoiler alert, the pineapple this week was voted off on The Masked Singer. Are you going to go back and watch that episode? There is a pineapple? There's a pineapple this week. Pineapple was voted <laughs> off. 
<laughs> so there is a pineapple. Okay, well, uh, last week, they, hey, last week they were all animate objects. So I, I got totally confused. I think they were all animal, animate objects. There was a deer, there was a monster. Let's not recap that, <laughs> shall we? Okay, from now on, on TV's Top 5, we're going to have a weekly Masked Singer recap. I look forward to finding out all about the episode this week when I get around to watching it, hopefully the world won't spoil for me what celebrity is hidden there. Um, I will be honest, I'm not watching the show, but I'm having a blast reading about it. The interview, I'm not going to spoil it here for anyone who hasn't seen it, but we have an exclusive exit interview with the second celebrity who was voted off, and it is highly entertaining. So, THR.com, shameless plug. Do you watch any of these? I don't watch Unscripted. Okay. That, is, that, is that an across-the-board principle? I watched a lot of American Ninja Warrior because I loved all the uplifting stories that came as part of that but i think once they finally crowned a winner i think that was kind of where i tapped out although i'd still love to see a woman win that but i don't think those courses are really set up for women to succeed against some of their bigger bolder competition but no i just i've never been a big unscripted person i think the last unscripted show that i watched with any regularity before American Enjoyer was the Glee Project, if that tells you anything. It does tell me something, that you remember that the Glee Project was a TV show that existed. It was a great TV show. It was a lot of fun, Dan. And in some cases, it was better than late season Glee. Who won the Glee Project? Blake Jenner, who is now in movies and other TV shows. He's got a Netflix show with Renee Zellweger coming up. Ah. He's had a decent career. Hey, The Voice has never had anyone win and be that successful. So so I take back any mockery I had about the Glee Project. Thank you, Uh, Dan. As usual, we wrap things up this week with our Critics Corner segment. Number five. Dan, the holiday lull is over. Back to work for you this week. There's a lot of new... Wait, when did I stop working? (laughs) Where was this lull of which you speak? Okay, continue. (laughs) This week, there are lots of big premieres across streaming. Sex Education on Netflix, Hulu's Future Man, CBS All Access Returns for Discovery Season 2 of Star Trek. On cable, HBO is back with a new season of True Detective. Deadly Class premieres on Sci-Fi. National Geographic has Valley of the Boom. And of course, on broadcast, there's Fox has long awaited The Passage and the CW's Roswell. Dan, that's a lot to choose from. Oof, what do you got this week? It really is. Let's sort of go over a couple of them quickly before I get to my pick of the week. True Detective, new season, built around Mahershala Ali. The first season was very much a Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson two-hander. Second season was... Unclear what the second season. We're uh, going to skip right over season two. Yes, yeah. yeah, second season was kind of just a disaster. And the third season is, it really is, it is a showcase for Mahershala Ali. And that is a viable thing. It You know, it is worth it to watch Mahershala Ali playing three different ages of this same character investigating a murder mystery slash missing child mystery. I, to me, I didn't find the story all that exciting. And that, on one hand, is a bad sign because the story wasn't all that exciting. On the other hand, by this time, and I've seen five episodes, by this time in the second season, I already couldn't have told you what was happening in that season. It, it was just such a complete and total mess. This season is better than that. It is clearer than that. And Mahershala Ali is so watchable. And the supporting cast is is fine. Uh, Stephen Dorff is, is good. Scoot McNary is good. There are good people in it. Mamie Gummer, I believe Mamie is the Gummer who is in it, not Grace. Uh, Often get them confused. It's not great, but on the other hand, it's not infuriating. And already by like the second episode of the second season, I was vaguely insane. The Passage is based on a Justin Cronin vampire novel. 
And if you did not know that and watched the first couple episodes of The Passage, you would have no idea it was based on that novel. It's It's been changed and reshaped so much that it's verging on unrecognizable. It is not bad. <laughs> and that's as far as I will go. And yeah, my, my pick for the week, though, if you like the kind of thing it is, is Netflix's Sex Education, which comes from a first-time showrunner, uh, Lori Nunn, and it stars, among other people, Gillian Anderson and Asa Butterfield, and it is a British sex romp with a lot of empathy. Uh, the easiest way to describe it is that it's a lot like Netflix's Big Mouth, only live action. And Big Mouth, if you know the show, it is unflinchingly raunchy, and not really a show that you would ever want to watch with your parents or with your children, depending on your age of choice. But it is still a show with a very fundamental understanding of the adolescent and pubescent experience that I think is impressive and admirable. And I feel the same way about sex education. It's, it's very, very funny, but it also is heartfelt and honest. It's very graphic. It's very lewd, but it also captures a lot of emotional beats very, very well. I, I really enjoyed sex education on Netflix, and and that would be my pick of the week. Well, this feels like a good note to end things on. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. And if you like us, you should also take the opportunity to rate us, tell your friends, and say nice us, things. Facebook us. Yeah, nice things. I mean, please don't complain about my hair. Thank you so much for listening. Dan and I will be back next week. Have a good one.